fifth verse, listen, and the power of the gospel shall prevail. That's it. And that should be a great encouragement to you, and it is to me. All right, we come in with all kinds of burdens and all kinds of pressures. Like, i got to get this right. i got to do this. Man, what's going to happen if I do this? You know what's going to happen? The gospel is going to prevail. Um, it just is. Uh, God doesn't need me um, for the gospel to prevail. He doesn't need you. It's going to happen. Um, that should just be a really, really good encouragement that, listen, we don't got to worry. Um, he's got it taken care of, and he can cover it. Um, so I found that um, extremely encouraging, really, really wonderful words there. Um, so take out your Bibles and begin turning to Mark chapter 15. Uh, we're going to be in the first 15 verses, which is on page 852 in your pew Bibles. Um, what we like to do here is we take a book of the Bible and we preach through it. We've been in Mark for about 13 months now, uh, verse by verse, and we are now sadly um, drawing to the end. Uh, we've got about three weeks left um, with our dear and beloved um, Mark. Um, last week, we saw Jesus kind of caught up in this sham trial before the religious leaders of Jerusalem. We saw the, the great irony of it that Jesus, right, God himself, the judge of the universe, is he's in the dock. He's on the stand. God is being judged by man. And they all find him guilty. They sentence him to death for blasphemy, and the punishment um, for blasphemy was it was, it was death. Uh, they were going to kill him. But as we saw in John that we just read, the religious leaders have got a little bit of a problem. right? John 18, 31. For it is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. Right? Rome, ruling, controlling basically the whole known world, they did not allow all of the other countries under them to kind of carry out the death penalty. So to have Jesus executed, they've got to go through Rome. They would have to convince the Roman authorities, led by this man Pilate, um, to kill Jesus. And they know, though, that Rome does not care about the charges of blasphemy. Right? Rome could care less about the religious dealings of the Jewish people. So they've got to come up with something else. They've got to come up with a charge that is going to stick. And Luke specifically tells us what that charge is in Luke 23, verse 2. They say to Pilate, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. You remember last week, we talked for a while, we characterized sin as treason, right? Sin well, is kind of this attempted role reversal. It's a coup, right? When we sin, we are displacing God from his rightful position as king and replacing him with ourselves, right? We basically are saying, no, we're God. Uh, we're going to do um, what we want. We know better than you. Um, not thy will be done, but my will be done, right? That's, that's treason. And treason is basically it's just betrayal. It's an attempt to overthrow the rightful authorities that are currently in power. That's what we do when we sin. We are all guilty of treason. But the great irony of our passage this morning is that Jesus is here being accused of treason. Jesus is going to die for the very thing that we are all guilty of. Right? The religious authorities, they come to Pilate and they tell him, he told us not to pay taxes to Caesar. Well, that's a lie. We just saw a few weeks ago that he specifically told him to pay taxes to Caesar. Right? And then they say, he's, he's saying that he is a king. Right? The crowd cries out to Pilate, we have no king but Caesar. Right? Now, to claim to be a king, that was a charge that Rome would have been interested in. Right? So the Jewish leaders know that. Right? There can't be rival Caesars. There can't be other kings. So they know that Pilate will have to pay attention to this charge. Right? So they take him, they bring him to Pilate, and they turn him over. 
There are two characters in our story that I really want to focus on here this morning. First, we're obviously going to spend some time and look at Pilate. And then we're going to close by looking at just kind of the brilliant um, few verses about this man named Barabbas. Right? Pilate, I think, is a perfect warning, a perfect picture to us of what a cultural Christian looks like today. And I'll explain what that is as we go on. Right? In Pilate, we're going to get a little bit of bad news. Right? Here, here's what we are like. Uh, it's not so good. Bad news. But then we get to Barabbas. And there's a, really, there's a lot of good news um, wrapped up in the story of Barabbas. Barabbas gives us a beautiful picture of what real Christians actually are. They are redeemed rebels. Right? That's, we're Barabbas. Right? That's the point of this passage. Right? So we'll, we'll get there in a few minutes, though. So go ahead and look down at your copies of Scripture if you've got them with you. Uh, we're in chapter 15, starting in verse 1. You can follow along as I read. Uh, this is the word of the Lord. And as soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council. And they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. And the chief priests accused him of many things. And Pilate again asked him, Have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus made no further answer, so that Pilate was amazed. Now at the feast, he used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison, who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them, saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. But the chief priest stirred up the crowd to have him released for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to them, Then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, Crucify him. And Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, he delivered, them, he delivered him to be crucified. Let's go to the word, Lord of the Word of Prayer. Father, as we um, continue um, in these last days of Jesus' life, Father, um, I confess that I feel completely insufficient uh, to handle um, this passage. Um, Lord, the, the weight of what is going on um, in these verses, Lord, um, is so serious and the burden is so heavy. Um, Lord, so I ask simply that you um, would work and that you would speak um, in this time. I pray that you would accomplish what I cannot accomplish, that you would take your word and you would um, apply it to all of our hearts, um, Lord. Father, show us our sin, show us our tendency to be Pilate, um, Lord, but then show us the glorious grace of the substitution of Jesus Christ um, in this text. Pray all of this in his precious name, amen. Right, so we're gonna we're gonna start with with Pilate. Mark doesn't record much of the conversation. That's why I really wanted to read that really long um, passage for John because we see in it there's a whole lot going on in this back and forth with Jesus and the religious authorities and Pilate and the crowds. All Mark tells us is that Pilate asked Jesus, "Are you the King of the Jews?" And Jesus answers, "You have said so." But if you kind of were paying attention in that passage in John, right? It, they cover like his kingship, they cover the nature of truth and authority, um, they, they talk about um, all kinds of things, and ultimately it's pretty clear that Pilate realizes that Jesus is innocent, right? He, and he seems very interested in Genesis and the passage of time. He's asking questions, um, uh, and Mark says that he was amazed at Jesus. The King James says that he marveled at Jesus, right? In the Greek, that's a very positive 
work, right? It means to admire or, or to be impressed. In Matthew 8, right, Jesus sees this great faith in a centuri- Gentile centurion and says he, he marveled at his great faith. He, he admired it. He was impressed by it. Pilate is impressed with the man, Jesus Christ. He is attracted to him. There was something about Jesus that caught Pilate's interest. And he doesn't want anything to do with this trial. John 18, 31, he tells the Jewish leaders, you take him yourself and judge him. In Matthew 27, he's in the midst of this trial with Jesus, and his wife sends a messenger to into the room to Pilate and says, have nothing to do with this righteous man. I have been tormented in dreams um, because of him. She says, have nothing to do with this. Right? Right? Pilate knows what they're trying to do. Right? He knows that they just hate him, and they're trying to get him he knows that he hasn't done anything. And thus Luke 12, 14, 22, 14 says, After examining him before you, he says, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges. Neither did Herod find him guilty, for he sent us back to us. Look, nothing deserving death has been done by him. I will therefore punish and release him. To the crowds, three times he asserts, What evil has he done? I have found in him no guilt deserving of death. Pilate repeatedly emphasizes and insists that Jesus is innocent of these charges, right? He doesn't want anything to do with this. But that fact by itself um, is actually a little bit odd because we have numerous, you know, historical accounts that report that Pilate was a brutal and violent man, right? Pilate had no scruples about punishing people and he had no problem doing it violently and indiscriminately. He was not a man overly concerned with justice. On one occasion, he had decided to build a 23-mile aqueduct um, into the city of Jerusalem, right, to bring water into the city. That's a really great idea. That's really nice of you, Pilate. Well, he decided to fund that aqueduct, that state city project, with the tithes and offerings from the temple. Um, that would be like de Blasio walking in here, grabbing our offering plates, and guys, I'm going to build more subway or something, right? Listen, more subway sounds great. Uh, stealing the church's money to do it, probably not a great idea. That's what he's doing. He's taking their offerings and he's building this um, project. And that was understandably not well received, right? There were mass protests in Jerusalem, big, big crowds. And this is what he did because he, he sparked. He, he just, he told, he went to a cohort, he went to the troops and said, hey, take off all your armor, all your clothes, and completely disguise yourself in a regular garb of the people, sword strapped to your side. They disguise themselves and they just intersperse among the crowds. And then when he gives the signal, they just unleash, right? And they slaughter tons and tons of people. Many are killed um, and trampled kind of in the melee as they try to run and get away, right? There's another example in Luke 13, 11. We have no idea what this is about. Just one random verse uh, that says, there were some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. Well, that would have been like the worst of blasphemies um, to a Jewish person. Right? We don't know anything else about that story, but apparently Pilate had sacrificed worshippers in the middle of the act of worship, slaughtered kind of on the altar so that their own blood was mixing with the sacrifices of the animals. And the point is, by all accounts, Pilate doesn't seem to be a particularly upstanding fellow. Right? He doesn't seem to be very concerned with justice or innocence or any of those things. But here he is, for some reason, faced with Jesus Christ, and he is persistently defending his innocence. He wants nothing to do with this. 
And it's because there's something about this man that he just cannot shake. Right? There's something about Jesus that he is attracted to. Pilate likes Jesus. Pilate is interested in Jesus. Notice what happens um, in John 19.10. Remember, Pilate's like, hey, listen, don't you know that I have the authority to release you and I have the authority to crucify you? And Jesus answers and says, you, have, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. And it says, from then on, Pilate sought to release him. From then on, meaning in light of what Jesus just said, Pilate sought to release him. Why? Why from then on? What was it that Jesus had just said? Listen, Jesus had just talked about God. Right? Jesus had just referenced the one who was above, that had all power and all authority over all other earthly powers. And something about that struck a chord with Pilate. He hears about God, his authority, and he says, from then on, he's going to try to release him. Right? So Pilate knows that Jesus is innocent. He's interested in this person of Jesus. They have a fascinating back and forth. He's asking him questions. He had some sort of sense of the existence of God and of his own responsibility to that God. And do you know who that description, who, who that describes? Well, it describes a whole lot of people right now sitting in churches around this country. Right? I think that Pilate should be a great warning to us all. He's attracted to Jesus. He's interested in his message. He liked Jesus. He knew that he's, in, he, he's, you know, he's innocent. He, he believes in God. He seeks to initially defend and save him. But what did he end up doing? Verse 15. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. Listen. Fascination is not the same thing as faith. Right? Interest is not the same thing as trust. Church attendance is not the same thing as salvation. Saying you believe in Jesus is not the same thing as actually believing in Jesus. Right? Pilate is the perfect example of something that plagues American churches today. Right? Cultural Christianity. Not Christians who read books and listen to the fine arts or something. No, not that kind of culture. Cultural Christianity. Christians who are people who are Christians by name and appearance only. Right? This is like a plague where I'm from in the South. These are people who are raised um, in the church as their parents were Christians. So they just naturally call themselves Christians also. Right? Churches are filled with pilots. Right? These people, they like Jesus. They're certainly not opposed to Jesus. They like the message of Jesus. They have some sort of attraction to the man. But Pilate makes it brutally clear that none of those things are enough. Interest is not faith. Just because you are here and like the ideas of Jesus does not mean that you are actually his. I've been trying to hammer this point lately because it is so important. Right? This is a question of life and death. This is a question of heaven and hell. I think that there, are, there are millions of people um, around the world who are headed straight to hell and they don't even know it. Because they believe that since they prayed some magic prayer 20 years ago, or walked some aisle, or got baptized, or since they claim to believe in Jesus, that they are saved. But we've seen over and over again that none of those things constitute salvation. Right? That is why I am so fine coming up here and telling you that I am very hesitant about the sinner's prayer. And I'm hesitant about emphasis on decisions for Jesus. Jesus never tells us to get decisions. He tells us to make disciples. Right? 
And when we equate salvation to repeating a few magic words, and then we pat people on the back and send them on their way, never to see them again, we are doing far more harm than we are doing good. Right? We are giving people false assurance. We are telling them that God has done something for them that we have no evidence at all whatsoever that He has actually done. Listen, I honestly don't care um, when you got saved. Right? I don't care when you prayed the prayer or when you walked an aisle. Are you walking with Jesus right now? Right? Are you basing your salvation on a decision you made 30 years ago? Or by God's grace, are you living as a disciple of Jesus Christ right now? Because guys, listen, none of this, this stuff isn't a game. Right? This whole Jesus thing is not a hobby. He's not just one important thing that you add on to a list of other important things. He will not stand for that. He will not be one among many. He is either the Lord of all or he is the Lord of nothing at all. Right? He is either the Lord of your life or you are the Lord of your life. And one leads to blessing and life and the other leads to cursing and death. Are you a disciple of Jesus? Or are you like Pilate? Do you love Jesus? Have you submitted to him? Is he the central, defining thing in your life? Last week, Wednesday night, we were working through the first part of Romans 8. And it was a very convicting um, study for me. Because in it, Paul is talking about how there are ultimately only two types of people. Right? There is no middle ground. There's no third category. There is no fence right. You are either one or the other. He writes in verse 5 of Romans 8. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are on the flesh cannot please God. Two categories of people, right? You either have your mind set on the things of the flesh, or you have your mind set on the things of the Spirit. One is death, one is life. One is an enemy of God, unable to submit to Him and please Him. One is a friend and an ally of God, by His grace, and able to, to follow and to obey Him. Listen, it's not about praying a prayer. It's not about claiming to believe something. What is your mind set on? And what does that mean, though, by the way, to have your mind set on something, right? Listen, your, your mindset is your, it's your focus. It's simply what you think about all the time, what the focus of your life is, what your goals and ambitions and appetites are. What is your focus? What is the driving obsession in your life? What occupies your time? What keeps you up at night? What do you find yourself thinking about when you are alone? Right? Is it the things of the flesh or the things of the spirit? Or there's one old pastor who said, your religion is what you do with your solitude. Well, really convicting. In other words, right, whatever your mind most naturally and freely goes to, when you have nothing else to think about or distract about, that is the thing you probably really live for. Right? That is your religion. Your life is shaped by what occupies your mind. And notice in that passage how closely Paul associates living and minding, or living and thinking. In other words, whatever you set your mind on completely shapes what you do, your life and your character. Your mind matters, right? What you do is just a reflection of what you think. 
And that's why theology is so important. That's why scripture is so important because it is through the Bible that God changes and shapes our minds and he works and through them and then in that he changes our lives as well. Right? A mind, the Son of the Spirit, or salvation, or a relationship with Jesus, whatever you want to call it, it will affect your life. Right? It will make changes. There must be fruit. Right? The Bible is pretty clear that if there is no sanctification, if there's no change, no progress in holiness, no, no matter how small, right? if there's no change, there may have been no salvation. Pilate very clearly has his mind set on the things of the flesh. Listen, he likes Jesus. Right? He believes things about him. He believes in God. He believes that Jesus is innocent. But it clearly had no effect on his life. It produced no change. What is your mind set on? Right? What do you find yourself most obsessed with and most concerned about? What do you find yourself thinking about? Spending your money and your time on what drives and shapes you? Because listen, if it's not Jesus and His glory and what He has done for you, then you may have a problem. Two categories of people. That's it. There's only two. Which one are you? Are you following Jesus? Are you a disciple? Is your mind set on Him? And if so, how does that affect and change your life? Or are you like Pilate, mildly interested and attracted to Jesus? Right? We see very clearly that Pilate feared man far more than he feared God. And so he turned Jesus, a man that he liked, a man that he knew was innocent, over to be scourged and crucified. Listen, we have accounts of what Roman scourging was like. Uh, it was a leather whip, um, not just kind of with one head, but many kind of different um, heads. And at the end of each one of those, they would wrap a piece of bone or, or a piece of metal into the whip. And on a lot of those, they would attach hooks um, to those. Right? They referred, they called it the scorpion. And when, when you were whipped with it, it literally ripped the flesh off of your back. And it was so brutal that women were forbidden from being punished in that way, and they were even forbidden from witnessing a man being punished in that way because it was so terrible. We have accounts of it being so bad that it literally disemboweled people. Right? You have organs and things falling out, falling out. Right? Many people died just from the scourging before they could even get to the cross. That is what Pilate's mild interest in Jesus results in, right? The, the scourging of Jesus. Now, obviously, none of us would say that we would turn Jesus over to be flayed alive. But our interest that never actually leads to faith and trust is metaphorically the same thing, right? We believe things about Jesus. We're attracted to him. We may even believe that what he says about himself is true. But if we never submit to him and trust him, then we spiritually reject him and turn him over just like Pilate does. But here's the thing. Ironically, when you do that, right, and that becomes your settled position on Jesus, when you reject him and die separated from him, you end up the one tied to the whipping post, suffering an eternal fate similar to what Jesus is experiencing here. There has been sin, right? We can all agree, right? We have all sinned, right? Treason has been committed, and there must be punishment for that treason. Someone is going to pay for your crimes, right? And that brings us to Barabbas, right? Either Jesus is suffering and dying here for you, or you will be the one suffering and dying in eternity for your sin, right? That's terrible news. Right? We've got a whole lot of bad news here with Pilate. But the story of Barabbas gives us some amazingly good news. Thankfully, the passage does not end there. 
Right? Mark introduces us to our second character in verses 6 and 7. It says, Now, at the feast, he used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. So Pilate's plan is to release Jesus. Right? He hadn't done anything. He, he likes him. Plus, he doesn't like the religious leaders. Right? He can kind of stick it to them if he does this. But those religious leaders are one step ahead of him in verse 11, right? They had already been in and among um, the crowds, working and stirring them up to, to demand the release of this Barabbas instead. And we really, we don't know anything about this man except for these few um, verses. He was some sort of revolutionary, some sort of rebel. He had taken part in an uprising of some sort, and he had committed murder in that uprising. John tells us that he was also a, a robber, right? Nothing positive whatsoever is ever mentioned about Barabbas. Nothing at all that would be deserving of his release. He was a criminal. He was guilty, and he justly deserved to die. But his name is very interesting. Right? In Matthew 16, 17, remember Jesus calls Peter Simon, Bar, Jonah, Remember those three little letters, Bar? That just means son of. Right? He is Simon, the son of Jonah. Right? Well, here, listen. We have Barabbas. We have Bar, Abbas. We know what Bar means. It means son of. So we also know what Abba means. Right? Because it means father. So here is Barabbas, whose name means son of the father. Right? That's interesting. But that's actually not all. We've talked about uh, manuscripts before, Greek manuscripts. Remember, right? We're reading an English copy of the Bible, right? It was originally written in Greek 2,000 years ago. We don't have any of those originals, but we have thousands and thousands of copies that we can compare and know exactly um, what those originals said. But we talked about how there are some slight variations here and there in some of those manuscripts. They don't change anything, but just kind of some different spellings and things like that. Well, one of those variations comes in Matthew's account of this story. Because a lot of Matthew's uh, manuscripts of this story tell us that Barabbas' first name was Jesus. Right? Which wouldn't have been that crazy. Like, I would have been like Matthew today. It was a very common, there's nothing special or, or holy about that name. There were lots of Jesuses. But it seems here that we have two Jesuses. Right? So the crowds are given a choice by Pilate. In Matthew 27, 17, he says, Whom do you want me to release for you? Barabbas or Jesus who is called Christ? Do you want Jesus Barabbas or do you want Jesus the Messiah? Do you want Jesus the son of a father or Jesus the son of the father? In verse 21, they reply, Barabbas. And Pilate says to them, then what shall I do with Jesus who is called the Christ? And they all said, let him be crucified. And he said, why, what evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, let him be crucified. The crowd chooses the one who takes the lives of others to achieve his own selfish ends over the one who gives his life for others so that others may be saved. A man um, who kills to achieve political freedom over a man who is killed to achieve spiritual freedom. Jesus Barabbas, the guilty son of a father, is freed, while Jesus the Messiah, the innocent son of the father, is condemned. They trade places. The innocent for the guilty. The just for the unjust. Jesus takes the place and dies on the cross intended for Barabbas. Two Jesuses. One tries to rule by taking the life of others. One rules by laying down his life for others. One wants to overthrow a king. One is the king. 
One is a guilty man about to go free. One is a free man about to be condemned as guilty. One is deserving of death. One is deserving of only life. But the one deserving of death goes free. And the one who has never done anything deserving of death dies for him. Jesus takes the place of Barabbas. Listen, can you see what Mark is doing? <laughs> How much clearer could he be? He is basically beating us over the head with it. There is no subtlety here at all. This is the gospel. We are Barabbas. These few verses are a beautiful little illustration of the good news of Jesus Christ and what he has done for sinners. Jesus switches place with Barabbas. He got Barabbas' cross and Barabbas got his innocence. It's substitution, right? The innocent for the guilty. That's the gospel. If you need one word to remember to understand the gospel, substitution, right? That is what we are talking about here. That is the gospel. That is the heart of our faith. And many of you, hopefully, maybe some of you were thinking during these verses, right? Where's the justice, right? Barabbas shouldn't go free. He, he's a murderer. That's not fair. Yes, right? That's the gospel, right? The gospel is not fair. If you want fair, you get death in hell, right? Because that is what you justly deserve. We are a church full of Barabbases. We are Paul's list in 1 Corinthians 6. The sexually immoral, idolaters, adulterers, homosexuals, thieves, greedy, drunkards, revilers, swindlers. And such were some of you, Paul says. And such were all of us. Oh, but Barabbas, Barabbas, he was a murderer, right? I, I, I never, I've never murdered anyone, right? Well, Jesus says pretty clearly in Matthew 5 that if you've even been angry with your brother or sister, then you are a murderer, right? We tend to desire the gospel to be fair because we do not accurately perceive how sinful we are. Right? We struggle with murderers and homosexuals and people that don't look like us and dress like us and think like us coming to Christ and filling our churches because we so easily slip into a works-based mindset. We so easily slip into legalism and self-salvation, right? You think that what you do and do not do determines whether or not you are a Christian, right? I, I, I dress this way. I don't do these things. I'm respectable, upstanding. I'm a good person. Therefore, I am saved. Wrong, right? That's what the Pharisees thought about salvation. None of those things have anything to do whatsoever with your standing before God. No, listen, the good news starts off with a whole lot of painful, terrible, bad news that is very hard for us to swallow, right? And that is quite simply that you are a terrible, sinful person, and you are at war with God, right? Listen, there's no feel good, here you go, follow your heart, you're a good person in the Bible. No, it says you're a terrible person. It says you're dead in your trespass, right? This is the only place you can get this, by the way. Everyone else says you're pretty good. This is the only one that I think is honest, because I, I feel what the Bible says here. It's the only one that looks at the human condition and is honest enough to say, you're not a good person. You are a sinner, right? And there's nothing that we can do about it, right? You are the murderer Barabbas, right? You are guilty, in chains, hours away from your deserved death, and you have no hope. There is nothing that you can do to save yourself or contribute to your salvation. But then, in the story, the most amazing thing happens, right, for Barabbas. The door swings open, the chains are taken off, and the guard says, you can go. You're, you're free. And I'm sure you're thinking, why? What did I do? Nothing, right? It's because of him, right? It's not fair. It's not fair at all. It's 
grace. It's substitution. You are guilty. Jesus takes your guilt. You have a criminal record. Jesus gives you his perfect record. You are in bondage and Jesus sets you free. You have no hope and Jesus comes and rescues you. You deserve death. Jesus comes and dies for you. What did Barabbas do in this situation? Absolutely nothing. All he did was murder some people and get caught. He contributed nothing to his own salvation and neither do we. Right? We can't. We're slaves. We're dead in our trespasses, Paul says. But the gospel is that um, what we could have never done for ourselves, Jesus has so graciously done for us. Right? We've got to get out of this pattern of thinking of our salvation in terms of something that we have done. No, you're a Christian? Oh, of course. I, you know, I prayed a sinner's prayer 12 years ago. Wrong. Right? Are you a Christian? By God's grace, I am. He rescued me. He redeemed me. He restored me to life. You don't do it. He does it. Right? You don't deserve it. He earns it and then gives it to you for free. Right? Your head was on the chopping block and Jesus moved you aside and placed his head where yours formerly was. There's a pretty famous story you may have heard. It's from a man named Ernest Gordon. He is a, a Scottish soldier in the Pacific theater of the Second World War. At the age of 24, he was captured by the Japanese and he was um, put to work on the infamous Railroad of Death. Um, the Japanese have been saved a lot of hurt by the Nazis, right? Listen, the Japanese were almost just as bad as the Nazis in some occasions. They were brutal, um, brutal people in the Second um, World War. And he tells this, this tale of his time in this prison camp and working on this, basically this chain gang in this book called The Miracle on the River Quad. All right, the conditions are brutal. If you just Google his name or that book, right, they've got pictures of all the POWs when they were released. And they're, they're literally skeletons. I mean, they're skin and bones. I've never seen anything um, like it. But let me read to you the most famous kind of little snippet um, from this book. Gordon writes, A shovel was missing. The officer in charge became enraged. He demanded that the missing shovel be produced or else. When nobody in the squadron budged, the officer got his gun and threatened to kill us all on the spot. It was obvious that the officer meant what he had said. Then finally, one man stepped forward. The officer put away his gun, picked up a shovel, and beat the man to death. When it was over, the survivors picked up the bloody corpse and carried it with them to the second tool check. This time, no shovel was missing. Indeed, there had been a miscount at the first checkpoint. Right? That is substitution. Right? You have an innocent man stepping forward and dying for something that he did not do. But listen, even that beautiful picture falls woefully short of the actual gospel. Right? This man was dying for his friends. Right? This man was dying for men who were equally innocent of the same crime. That is not the case with the gospel. Jesus was switching places with a murderer. Jesus was dying for sinners. Jesus was dying for his enemies. He took the place of the worst of the worst. He took my place. He took on my sin when I had done nothing but reject him, deny him, and sin against him. Listen, it's pretty easy to love and sacrifice for my wife. It's just not that hard, right? She's, she's beautiful. She has all these attractive qualities that compel me to love and appreciate her, right? It was all those things that initially drew me to her. My love for Melissa was initially completely selfishly motivated, right? I'm going to benefit greatly from this relationship, right? That is not how it works with God and us. There was nothing attractive or desirable about us. Right? Melissa brought all kinds of things to the table and she had much to offer me. We bring nothing to the table 
and we have nothing to offer God except for the sin which demanded the death of His Son. Yet He loved us and died for us anyways. Right? That is the good news that we see depicted so beautifully here in the substitution of Jesus for Barabbas. That is what He has done for countless sinners that He died for. Substitution. Right? The essence of sin is man substituting himself for God. Right? Well, the essence of the gospel is God substituting himself into the place of man. And that is your only hope. Right? And that is the news that you will find only in Christianity. God sacrificing himself and dying himself for men. Right? Religion makes you sacrifice and die for God. The gospel has God coming and sacrificing and dying for you. It is utterly you won't find that anywhere else. Listen, the gospel ultimately has nothing to do with you, right? It is not about what you do at all. Right? It is about what Jesus Christ has done for you. And I say this repeatedly, but I do so because I know so many people still don't get it, right? If your salvation is dependent at all on something that you do, then it's not grace, right? Grace is Free. Grace is undeserved, unmerited. It is an unearned gift. You deserve death. You earned death. You merited that death. But you got life. And you get none of the credit for it. And listen, when you begin to understand that, it absolutely changes everything. Right? Imagine if someone stepped in front of the bullet for you. Right? And they saved your life. <laughs> You'd be pretty excited about that. Right? Imagine if you were dead on the table and the doctor literally brought you back to life. He brought you from death to life. Well, Jesus has done so much more than that. Right? He has rescued you from an eternal death that you cannot even begin to imagine. Right? Has that changed you? Right? Listen, someone saved my life. I want to tell people about it. Right? That's, I mean, that's pretty awesome. That's good news. Listen, if this is actually true, right, we should want to talk about it. Right? It should change us. It should affect our lives. Right? Do you really understand the grace of Jesus Christ and what He has done for you? Have you really submitted to this man? Are you trusting Him? Are you following Him? Because guys, listen, I said it before, He has done so much. He has done more than He possibly could to earn your trust. Right? He has proven Himself time and time again to be worth it. Pilate was the most powerful man in Israel. Right? Pilate had it all. Barabbas was a murderer sentenced to death. Yet it was Pilate who ended up rejecting Jesus. And Barabbas, though he did nothing to earn it, who was rescued and freed. Jesus took his place. And that's grace. Are you Pilate or are you Barabbas? Do you look at yourself as kind of a put-together, well-respected, got-it-together Christian? Or do you look at yourself as Paul looked at himself as a wretch and the chief of sinners, needing and desperate for the grace of God? Have you really understood who you are and what Jesus Christ has done for you? Because, guys, it's, it's amazing. I mean, it's life-altering um, stuff. All right, so let's, let's go and close and pray to him and ask him to help us um, to understand um, that. Father, we come to you um, confessing our sin, um, Father, and confessing our failure um, to to follow you and to submit to you um, as we should. Father, I am so prone um, to treat um, what you have done for me um, very lightly, um, Lord, and not um, Lord, I pray 
uh, that you would forgive us of uh, that. Um, Lord, and I pray that you would so reveal to us um, your son, Jesus Christ, and his amazing grace and what he is doing here in this passage and taking our place, um, Lord, that you would just um, set our hearts on fire for him. Father, change us, uh, shape us um, through your grace. Father, rules won't do it, regulations um, won't do it, but your um, just um, unimaginable love um, will, um, Lord. It is through love and grace that you change um, us, um, Lord. And I thank you so much um, for loving me when I did not deserve any um, love or attention from you, um, Lord. And I just pray that I would be empowered by your grace to live in light of that, um, Lord, and to want to, to love and to serve others because you have so loved and served me. Father, the bad news is bad. I pray that we would understand um, how bad it is. But so much more clearly, Father, I pray that you would shine a light um, into our hearts of the good news of the gospel. Father, there is life and there is rescue and there is hope and there is salvation at the foot of the cross. Um, Lord, Father, thank you for loving us and rescuing us. It's in Jesus' name that we pray.